Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Just take a copy of God's Word and open it to James chapter 1. And out of respect for the word of the Lord, please stand for its reading. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You may be seated. When I started, uh, when I started meditating, preparing for this sermon, I thought that the uh, the opening of this would be easy. I'd like to give a little historical context for the book before we dive into the verses we just read. And so, the first most obvious question is, who wrote this book? And you'd think that'd be really simple to answer, wouldn't you? James, right? It's right there in the first verse. It's right there in the title in your Bible. Turns out, nothing is easy in the book of James. There are, uh, depending on who you ask, there are three to six different men with the name of James in the New Testament. Scholars are not entirely agreed on who wrote this particular book. Um, however, I think, it's worth con- I think it's worth considering a little bit of who the most likely candidate is and uh, the context in which he was writing. So, as you may re- so turn in your Bibles, first of all, to Matthew chapter 10. And we're going to look at, briefly at this, the calling, um, the list, the fir- one of the first listings of Jesus' disciples in the, New- in the Gospels. Now, the names of these twelve apostles are these. The first, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax gatherer, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, the one who betrayed him. Very familiar passage. We're going to see we've already got two James in here already. Um, The first, and and by far the most prominent throughout the gospel, is going to be James, the son of Zebedee. He, along with his brother John, they were fishermen. They were the first disciples called after Peter and his brother Andrew. Um, they were very, they were, all the disciples were companions of Jesus, but the sons of Zebedee were very, you know, very particular, particularly close with our Savior from what we can see. He nicknamed them the Sons of Thunder, and they gave some reasons for, for the, we gave, we have some reasons guessed at the reasons for the nickname in the gospel account. They would have, they followed him inside and raised the synagogue official's daughter from the dead in Mark chapter, Mark chapter 3. He took them up the Mount of Transfiguration along with Peter in Matthew 17. In uh, Mark 10, they came to Jesus and asked to sit, one on his right and one on his left-hand side. Um, and they were, with, they were certainly with, in, with Jesus in Gethsemane uh, after his arrest. So this James, son of Zebedee, is very, you know, would be a very tempting candidate for, to identify as the author of this book. But he was actually put to death by Herod. 
uh, around 44 AD. You can read that, that account of that briefly in Acts chapter 12. Uh, there's just one verse saying that Herod was, uh, Herod was starting, beginning his persecution against the church, and since, and since uh, putting James to death pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter as well. That seems to, the, um, this book of James is considered one of the earlier epistles in the New Testament, but it's still not quite early enough to be that James the son of Zebedee. So James the son of Alphaeus is also listed here in the list of apostles. Um, far less is said about him throughout, throughout the, the, uh, both the Gospels and the New Testament in general. I have read some scholars who identify him as the author, but I, I feel like it's a bit, uh, it's not, it doesn't feel conclusive to me. There's another candidate and who I'd like to present to you as the, like, the, the best candidate to be writing this book. And, that, and you can read about this guy in Matthew chapter 13. So just skip over a few pages from where you're looking there in Matthew 10. You're going to be going, looking at verse 55 near the end of this lo- very long chapter. Actually, back up to verse 53 for the context. And it came about... That when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. And coming to his hometown, he began teaching them in their synagogue, so that they became astonished and said, Where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? So James was the name of one of Jesus' brothers, one of his half-brothers, one of his maternal half-brothers to be precise. John chapter 7, um, interestingly, says that um, not, it, wasn't only, it, wasn't only the, uh, it wasn't only the inhabitants of his hometown that didn't believe in Jesus, it was, it was his brothers as well. They actually did not believe in him or his ministry, or what, and they had no idea, and it's clear from their words, they had no idea what he was here to do. It's interesting, however, in, by the beginning of the, the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, it says Jesus', um, Jesus brothers joined the other disciples following Christ's resurrection and ascension. And so that would have included this James, uh, the, our Savior's half-brother. Uh, if you look at 1 Corinthians 15... Paul is here writing, and he's talking a little bit about the events following the resurrection. And he says that after that, he, that is Jesus, appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. In, and then in... Um, in Acts chapter, there are references to, J, to a James throughout the book of Acts. In Acts 21... Paul meets with James and the elders, also in Acts 12. And then James has a, has a prominent speaking part in, in uh, the presbytery described in Acts chapter 15, um, and where he speaks at length during the Council of Jerusalem in support of Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. And then finally, I think the most, and then finally, Galatians chapter 1. Paul writes in verse 18, Galatians chapter 1, Then three years later I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. But I, I did not see any of the apostles except James, the Lord's brother. This is almost just an aside from the apostle Paul, just giving a, vent, a description, of his, description of his recent actions and movements. And yet here it mentions James, 
the Lord's brother, which seems to refer back to the same guy who initially didn't believe in his, uh, didn't believe in his, the incarnate Son of God, his half brother. But then, but soon after his resurrection, resurrection seemed to come to faith very soon. I think this is most likely the author of the Epistle of James, given given the repeated references to him and given to given to uh, the obvious leadership of an of an apostle or an elder named James in Jerusalem. I think my fa- the favorite detail that came out of all, all my research into this was actually in Acts chapter 15. Um, and in Acts chapter 15 and verse 23, they write a le- there's a letter written, um, there's a re- letter written to uh, the churches following the, to uh, communicate the decisions of the council that had met. And listen, just listen to the way in which the, um, this letter opens in verse 23. The apostles and the brethren who are elders, to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles, greetings. That's it. And then they get into the body of the letter. Now compare that with the, uh, compare that with the opening of, uh, of the epistle of James. And you'll see it says, James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, the twelve tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. And then, right in, and then let's get down to business. Now, if that seems like a bit of a sketchy connection, just pick any epistle from the Apostle Paul and work through the verse after verse after verse where it's nothing but greeting, grace to you and peace, grace to you and peace, time and time again. It's a very distinctive opening to uh, it's a very distinctive opening to Paul's letters. There seems to be a similar James's style seems to be much more curt and to the point, and you can see that both in the influence he had on that letter in Acts as well as this epistle. Now, all this is well and good, but why, why are we... I'm no, I don't mean to belabor this into a history lesson. I think, it's impo- it's impo- I think the context is very important when we, th- we ponder this book, why it was written, to, to whom it was written. It's likely to, that this was one of the oldest epistles written that we have gathered into what we know as the New Testament today. Um, the dates usually range between 45 to 62, 62 A.D., and, um, and it was written by a man who was a leader in the church, he was his concern was particularly for his brethren, uh, his brethren of the nation of Israel who'd come to faith in Christ. Um, it's had a contentious history ever since he wrote it. Uh, most famously during, during the early Reformation, Martin Luther referred to this book as an epistle of straw because he couldn't wrap his, he was trying to wrap, he'd just gotten done wrapping his mind around justification by faith and felt like James was tearing that all down for him. Um, he was in a very, he was in, very un, he was in a very uncertain place, so he uh, lashed out at James. I'm sure they've uh, met in heaven and made up now since then. This would have been written as a general epistle. Um, you'll notice in most, most of Paul's epistles begin not with his name, but with the name of the church or the geographic region to which he was writing. This, so he's very preoccupied with that particular church. He focuses in very, often very intimate detail upon their problems and you know, giving them advice, counsel, direction from the Lord. James, he doesn't write to anyone in particular. He writes to a very broad category. The, uh, the disciple to the twelve tribes are dispersed abroad. It's intended. This letter was intended to be sent out to a lot of churches. Intended to be read, reread, studied, read from the pulpit, sent on to the next church. You know, if anyone hadn't heard about it, say, "Hey, make sure you get the latest letter from James." Um, James would have been spending his life in Jerusalem, ministering to the church there. But here, he turns his attention to his brethren, both in the flesh and in the spirit, scattered beyond the boundaries of Israel. We, we could go on and preach tons of sermons on what would have led to the dispersion, the, you know, to the believers in the dispersion that he talks about this morning. By this point, the Jews would have been scattered for many reasons. 
hundreds of years ago, most of the tribes in the northern king of Israel would have been scattered, uh, would have been scattered by conquest. Southern king of Judah lasted a little bit longer, but they too succumbed to, to invaders. Uh, many would return the time of Ezra and Nehemiah and form the basis of the, the nation of Israel as it existed in James's day. Um, but they would have encountered, they would have, uh, but the persecution under Antiochus Epiphanes following the conquest of Alexander the Great would have been still fresh in the minds of many of the people reading this. Given the likely time period of this book, the Jews would have been, at, would have been waging various forms of open and guerrilla war against the Romans at this time, leading up to the ultimate siege of Jerusalem in AD 70. And on top of all that, the Jewish converts to Christianity would be facing persecution uh, from, their, you know, from their fellow Jews already. So in other words, the recipients of this letter needed what James was offering. In this book, he has left most of the close development of doctrine to Paul, and he's focused on belief and actions. Belief in action, excuse me. Times were tough, and the Lord's people needed to know what to do. So that mind, let's take a closer look, not at the context, but at the book itself. Um, the, thing that's, the thing that's painfully clear is that there's about, there are at least 40 sermons that could have been preached on any one verse on just, you know, just a few words in any of this. It is, so ri- it is so rich. There's a famous refrain that he opens with, Count it all joy. <laughs> He, he launches right into that. Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Now, I don't know about you, but this is not how I would want to start a sermon or a letter on trials and persecution. I'd want, I'd want a little hand padding first. I would say, I know times are tough for you guys right now. It's really hard. Sometimes it just gets you down. But does James go there? No. He goes right in and says, Christian, have joy. Have joy. I don't care what he said. He didn't even know the particulars of what I was going through, and that's still what he comes up with. Then there's the end, the purpose of trials, described in verse 3 and 4. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Paul doesn't, so right from the joy, he immediately, he immediately reminds people of why we go through trials to begin with. We, it's good to remember he does, not have a, he does not have stoicism in mind here. Stoicism would have been a popular philosophy, particularly among um, you know, well, well-born, prosperous Roman patriarchs in this area. Stoicism is basically just a philosophy that you should be so absorbed in dedication to duty that yeah, you're unflappable with regard to something else. You just, you're, you're calm, you're reserved, you're restrained in all things, um, simply because, usually because you're so committed to worshiping the state that you don't really care about anything else. That would have been the doctrine preached to many, particularly in the military orders of Rome at the time. It's a, it's a philosophy that's seen resurgence even in our own day. There's, whole, there's books written, there's bestsellers on Audible about that, whose titles basically boil, boil down to how not to give a care about anything. That is apathy. That is not the patience. That is not the endurance that uh, Paul, that James was writing about here. Instead, this is, this is an endurance that, not only, that can not only persevere through the most difficult times, but does it with joy, does it with knowledge of the Lord and Savior uh, who makes who makes it, not only makes it possible as ordained all things that comes, and sees that opportunity to grow and to serve others. That's all I'm going to say on those two points, not because there isn't a lot more to say, but because James is so clear on these things. We should have joy. We should welcome the, the, you know, the growth and endurance that he gives us. Let's take those as givens and ask what I think is the, uh, the harder question, at least the one I'm struggling with right now, is 
How do we do that? It's easy to say. It's easy to read. It's clear, you know, there's no confusion there, but how do we accomplish it? First of all, take uh, notice with encouragement and also sobriety in verse 2. When you encounter various trials. When, not if. If you're a Christian in this life, you're going to have trials. And, uh, that's not, and that sh- I hope that's not a surprise to anybody out here. Um, I, there's there's going to be a lot of overlap with things that I'm saying this morning that your pastor has already touched upon, both in his exposition through First Peter and also just in some of the topical sermons he's felt led to preach because of the circumstance of our lives in this, in this very church. We've had conflict with families. We've, we struggle with uncertainty in our jobs and our callings. We've lost possessions to fire. We've, uh, you know, we've left the domination and set out a new course uh, you know, with a new presbytery. We have had, uh, you know, we have had lots of difficult things, and you all know what those are. And uh, in the midst, and that should not come as a surprise to us. What is the, and but for all that, we are still surprised. We are, we do still struggle, don't we? So we should remember that Jesus told. We should remember first of all that Jesus told us we'd have this coming. Uh, John chapter sixteen. Comes in the middle of a of a lengthy of uh, uh, some a lengthy section of Jesus' words, and he says, uh, backing up at verse thirty-two, "Behold, an hour is coming, and has already come, for you to be scattered, each to his own home, and to leave me alone. And yet I am not alone, because the Father is with me. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage; I have overcome the world." So certainly there is the assurance of Christ's presence that he will be with us. But there's also the recognition that if you follow me, you're going to have, a, you're going to have trouble just like I did in this, in this fallen world. As a matter of fact, if you look at going back to Matthew 10 that we looked at earlier, in verse 34, he says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. And I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life shall lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Jesus promised that his own ministry itself, and and to the extent which we follow it, our, our participation in that ministry would bring conflict. And it would bring conflict in very intimate and close ways. That's another reason it's important to remember the context, because remember who the likely author is. is. Jesus, he, G, James knew this from both sides. He was, James, he was Jesus' half-brother, and when his half-brother was doing his earthly ministry here, James didn't even believe him. He thought he was, he thought he was crazy, had no idea what he was about. He was, he was on the other side. You know, he, was, he, was, he was a source of trial, before he started to write and admonish his brethren about how to endure trials. And then at the same time, he's also seen the persecution of the Jews in Jerusalem, and he's been weighed down and burdened with the state, with the state of his fellow Jewish Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor at this time. He's seen, both si- he's seen and wrestled with both sides of this. Now, how do you react to trials? When things are tough, when you go through struggles, whatever they are, what's your reaction? Do you 
do you immediately respond with delight and happiness as you watch as you watch your patience unfold and blossom before your eyes? Okay, some of you are nodding. Yeah, some of you really need this sermon this morning. I'm afraid I'm afraid that is not my reaction. I have to admit my reaction is usually something along the lines of why me? Or you know, or even better, what did I ever do to deserve this? Uh, I have literally spoken those words in my head at certain times. I can, I can remember the time and the place. Um, it's the and um, so we're just not. James's command is not, is the first is the first challenging admonition of the book full of challenging admonitions. As a matter of fact, it may be the the most challenging. But I think there's I think it's a, have you ever have you ever noticed have you ever noticed an addition that trials never come all by themselves that would be great wouldn't it wouldn't it be great if life was basically just one kind of tranquil we were just kind of life was basically defined by tranquility everything going well and then every now and then something bad happens one thing just one thing at a time and so it had so peace tr- trial and then afterwards we can sit back and soberly reflect upon all that we just learned from that difficult time through the succeeding period of tranquility. Has that ever happened to anybody in here? No. Have you ever found yourself saying it never rains but it pours? Have you ever found that trials just come piled on top of you one after another over and over and over again? And I don't know about you, but for me, in the midst of that, the hardest, I think the hardest thing is just knowing what to do next. Because we get, discar- we get discouraged, we get borne down, and all of a sudden we're wondering, I don't think I'm cut out for the responsibilities God's given me. I do, I do the right thing. I don't think it makes any difference. I, you know, I'm not seeing any change in the world around me. Uh, Lord, I'm just done. I'm ready to throw it in. And that brings us, trials are confusing. Many Christians have struggled to understand them. Think about Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 16 to 19. Uh, this is where, actually let me just flip there. The world didn't exist long before, uh, tr- before trials came. Because it says, he says to Adam, after, he's fin- after, he, after the Lord has finished cursing serpent and Eve, he turns to Adam and says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have, not eat- and have eaten from the tree about which I command you, saying you shall not eat it, cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thist- thistles it shall grow for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So obviously all the trouble in the world came from sin. We know that. It came in very soon with mankind's fall. And it would be nice to just say, well, if you got in trouble right now, it means you probably just sinned, and you need, need to repent, and then everything will get back to that, that tranquil ideal that we've been talking about. But, the world's not quite, but, but sin is not that simple. And neither are difficulties. Consider Deuteronomy chapter 23. And if you do have your Bible, do turn to that, because I want to look at several passages in that chapter. Hang on. I think I wrote down the wrong reference. I had to do this at least once today, so I'm getting it out of the way early. Here we go. Deuteronomy 28. Deuteronomy 28, starting in verse 1. Now it shall be, if you will diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, 
which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you, if you will obey the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body, and the produce of your ground, and the offspring of your beasts, the increase of your herd, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. And this goes on, for, this goes on all the way up to verse 14, in which the Lord specifically lays out all the ways in which his people will thrive and prosper under obedience to him and his law. But now skip ahead, beginning in verse 15. But it shall come about, if you will not obey the Lord your God, to observe to, to, observe to do all his commandments and his statutes which I charge you today, that all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city, and cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the, the offspring of your body, and the produce of the ground, and the increase of your herd, and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in, and cursed shall you be when you go out. If you've ever read Deuteronomy 28, you know that these verses go on a lot longer. There's a lot more dire consequences the Lord lays out for disobedience. So the Lord promises to bless the righteous in this life. The Lord promises to curse the wicked in this life. The thing is, when we get in the middle of these difficult times, the line between those two is not as clear-cut as we would like it to be. Ponder uh, Psalm 73. This is uh, when things are difficult. When you're, this is a very helpful psalm to consider this whole subject. As soon as I get all the papers stuck out of my, pulled out of my Bible. So the psalmist opens in very familiar fashion, saying, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant, as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men. Nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness. The imaginations of their heart run riot. And then skip ahead to verse 13, and he says, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. What is the psalmist seeing here? He's looking at the state of the wicked. And these, these are really wicked people. These are not, you know, these are not just vaguely unpleasant people. You know, these, uh, they're not only mocking the people of God, they're crying out against the Most High himself and, say, and saying, the Almighty does not hear. It doesn't matter. And what is the result? I mean, if, if we were in charge, what we would love to see is these people incinerated on the spot, you know, the moment they do it. That's what, that would make us all feel better. But no, the Lord not only caused them to exist, but from our perspective, they're seeming to prosper. Meanwhile, the psalmist is wringing his hands saying, like, what am I doing? I'm trying to do everything right. I'm trying to do everything right. You can almost hear Chuck Fultz whining get started in his head. What did I do to deserve this? I'm trying to do everything right, like that's even possible. And yet I am, str- and yet I am struggling with everything. And yet I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. I think deep down, what we'd all like to hear is a nice prosperity gospel sermon this morning. Now we might, we might, uh, now we might verbally condemn such a you know such a crude presentation of believe in Jesus and everything will go right. We'll be like, yeah, you know, we've been told we'd love, you know, we've been told not to believe that, so we'd condemn it. But I think deep down in our hearts, the reason that's popular is we'd all like to believe we could name it 
and claim it right now. We'd love to come to Jesus and live our best life. We'd love to have emotional, financial, social, economic security in everything we do. Uh, we'd love to, we'd love to think, just take that as a given um, because we're Christians. And I think we wouldn't be unique in that. In James, in, uh, excuse me, in John chapter 9, and beginning in verse 1, it, uh, it records, the, uh, records the account of a, man, a blind man who Jesus healed. And he passed by, and as he passed by, Jesus saw a blind man from birth, a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was in order that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me, as long as it is day. Night is coming when no man can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. The disciples were looking for a very easy connection between this man's, the, this man's infirmity and sin. Somebody's got a sin. Something went wrong because obviously he's not, he's not happy right now. He's not, having, he's not having an easy time of it. So obviously there's got to be something wrong. And Jesus said, not so fast. This man was born blind for many reasons, but this man was born blind primarily uh, for the work that I have to do. We'd like to believe, you know, we'd like to... We'd like to believe there's a very easy connection between our faithfulness and prosperity and, our, you know, and sin and consequences. But instead, what, what do we have? We have James, we have James and, you know, good old James, in just a few verses. He's told us that when trials come, we should be happy about the trials themselves. We should be welcoming the testing of our faith that produces endurance instead. <laughs> but, I mean, look at Hebrews 11. What does that mean? Hebrews 11, the Apostle Paul has just regaled us with stories of Christians far better, far stronger, far more faithful than any of us. And look how he concludes it in, Psalm, in verse 36. Back in verse 32. What more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, and obtained promises shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, from weakness were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn to, they were tempted, they were put to death with the sword. They went about sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. And all these, having gained approval through their faith, did not receive what was promised, because God had provided something better for us, so that apart from us they should not be made perfect. I don't know about you, but I'm not exactly feeling the joy in my heart bubbling up like James commands quite yet. Because right now it just looks like we've got a rough road to walk. Um, and what do we end we st- and uh, we've gotten this far, and we still don't know what to do in the midst of these things. But see, this is why I think James in his, I think this is why James then comes to verse five and praise God for James one verse five, because what does he write there? But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. When I first started me- meditating on this chapter, I used to think, Monson. Oh, it's a really strange change of subject. And, you know, there is a paragraph break. There, there is a new thought, but it definitely follows from what goes before. But it's, no, it's not out of place, is it? 
Because if we're in the middle of hard things, we don't know what to do. What's the thing we need above all? It's wisdom. The, uh, the verse, the wisdom in mind, the wisdom written here is the Greek word Sophia. Uh, it means, it's usually, it's almost always translated wisdom. It's very closely related to various words translated wisdom in the Old Testament. And in every case, it always has, it's always a very practical word. It always means knowledge and action. The, uh, the New Bible Dictionary defines it this way. Wisdom is the art of being successful, of forming the correct plan to gain the desired results. Its seat is the heart, the center of moral and intellectual decision, the art of being successful. This is the wisdom that's the theme of Proverbs all the way through. It's the wisdom by which kings and rulers rule and rule well. It's the wisdom of the wise woman in, 31, in Proverbs 31 who praises God, who gives joy and service to those around her while juggling many, many responsibilities. It's also the wisdom, it's the wisdom that Solomon would have asked for when, uh, when he ascended to the throne. It's the wisdom of the sons of Issachar that you can read about in 1 Chronicles 12, who understood the times and knew what Israel should, should do. If I might put it this way, wisdom is best thought of more as street smarts than book learning. Um, obviously, study, and study, reflection, investigation, these are uh, gaining knowledge. These are all part of wisdom, to be sure. But for, the tr- for someone who is truly wise, there comes a time when you put the book back on the shelf and you get to work. And that is exactly what the Lord is promising to give us here in James chapter 5. And so in answer first to our question about how do, we, how do we interpret, how do we respond, how should we best view our trials, that we may respond to them with joy, then he, I think he would lead us to Hebrews chapter 12. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you may not grow weary and lose heart. Now, given our context of our book, that's a pretty interesting way to start, isn't it? Consider him, talking to Jesus, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself. Remember, our, our, uh, our, the author of our book was likely a sinner who'd shown hostility against the Lord Jesus already. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood, and you're striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? In God's wisdom, he disciplines. Some other people around us who don't believe in the Lord Jesus, who are not, have not been called in his name, they may have hard times too. They may stub their toe. They may lose their job. They may get called ugly names. They may, they, may, they may even die in some conflict somewhere. And for them, it would just be, you know, and for them, it would just be the consequence of living in a fallen world. It may be punishment for their sin. It could be any number of things. But for us, but for, us for you, Christian, everyone sitting in here, whatever happens to you is all part of a divinely ordained plan for your good. Every hard thing that comes is, was custom designed. It was tailor-fit, tailor-made just for each and every one of you, uh, for your good, for your benefit, that you may have joy. That's the, first, that's, the truth we have to, that's the truth that we recognize that we confess, that we all know. But we still got to go through it, don't we? Even recognizing that, that we still have to go through the trials and the struggles, and we still don't know. But thankfully, wisdom is not, wisdom is not done with us yet. We 
we still have to do the endurance, we still, and we still struggle to find the joy in it. So here is what I think is the second most important thing I'm going to say in the sermon today. Um, I'm going to turn with me to 1 Peter 4, a little bit after the book, next book after James. I'm going to steal all Andrew's thunder for a future sermon. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. By no means let any of you suffer as a murderer, or thief, or evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not feel ashamed, but in that name let him glorify God. For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it is with difficulty that the righteous is saved, what will become of the godless man and the sinner? Therefore, let those also who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. So if you remember only a few things from the sermon today, here's, here's the first thing to remember. We need to be very careful judging our actions by our circumstances. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, first of all, we do, need, we, do need to ponder, we do need to ponder the consequence of our actions. That is part of wisdom. You know, if, if our words have hurt someone else, if our actions have caused someone despair or harm, then we need to, we need to make recompense and make it right. However, if we've striven to do the right thing, we, things may still go badly. Things may still be hard. And at that point, as Peter writes here, we'd be tempted to feel ashamed. We'd be tempted to feel despair. And that is where we cannot, um, we have to be very careful, trusting our own hearts, our own emotions in those times, to judge the rightness of our conduct and our decisions in those times. Instead, what do we turn to? We have to turn to the Lord. We have to turn to his word. And that is why we need wisdom. Because think about it, we talked a lot about trials and difficulties today. But what about, what about the alternative? What if, you got, what if you got those long stretches of tranquility where everything's going your way, where you're pretty happy and content? What do you do in those times? If you've experienced those times, have you ever stopped and stepped back and said, whoa, hang on, things are going a little too easily for me right now? Uh, I think about Deuteronomy chapter 8, where, uh, where Moses... Or Moses is uh, preaching about the history of the nation of Israel and God's providence, God's providence in their formation, in their life. And he writes in um, he writes beginning in verse eleven. He said, "Beware, beware, lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping His commandments and His ordinances and His statutes, which I am commanding you today. Lest when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your herds and your flocks multiply and your silver and gold multiply, and all that you have multiplies." Sounds a lot like about what we read earlier in Deuteronomy. These are all signs of blessing, right? All the signs of blessing for faithfulness. And he says, but in the midst of that, be careful. Then your heart becomes proud, and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with his fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground, where there was no water. He brought you water for you out of the rock of Flint. He goes on listing some of the things that the Lord has done for them. He says, otherwise you may say in your heart, my power... And the strength of my hand have made me this wealth. When we focus on the circumstances, when we focus on the trials, we'll be driven to either to despair 
or to pride. Despair because we feel inadequate and we feel unequal to the task he's given us. Or pride because we feel like we're on top of it and we can handle it. But those all come from viewing, you know, from centering on the struggles themselves. Instead, what we need to do is come back and ask the Lord for wisdom. We are always... So we do right and experience suffering. We do wrong and we counter prosperity. Or we're faithful and enjoy peace. Or we sin and are immediately brought up short by its consequences. We've seen all of these examples in Scripture today, haven't we? And in all of these things, we are always forced back to God, His wisdom, and our need for both. So, um, wrapping up here, if I've, if I've done any kind of my job this morning, you should be, hopefully you're filled with a desire for wisdom right about now. Hopefully you're asking yourself, how can I get this wisdom? Like, right now. Like, before Monday comes. And, and the thing that made last week so wretched it returns, returns to my life again. Because I need the wisdom. There are things, that, there are things that in each of your all's hearts that you're struggling with right now. I wish I could, uh, you know, I wish I could sit down with every single one of you so we could work through those things this morning. It would probably be a long morning. Um, but, I th- but here's the most important thing. What little sermon there is left to preach, I think, uh, as usual, for what little sermon there is left to preach, James has already preached it, and in far, fewer, far better, far fewer words than I do. Ask the Lord for wisdom. Do you do that? It is so simple. Do you ask the Lord for wisdom? This is because this is not something where we have to get stressed out that we're going to pester God or that we're going to have to expect him to give us just enough to get by. That's, we often speak of grace and faith that way. The Lord is often pleased to give us you know, just enough that we keep trusting in him. But wisdom, that's not the promise here. What is the promise in verse 5? For he gives to all who ask with liberality. God is just, he is just, he is wisdom itself. He is just waiting to pour it out on you. So why not take advantage of it? And I'm so, ask for it right now. I mean, tune out in the rest of the sermon if you have to. Go to the Lord. You've got something in your heart and mind right now. Give it to the Lord and say, Lord, give me wisdom. I need to know what to do. And I can't wait for next week on this thing. I need to know right now. And then do it again later this afternoon. And do it again tomorrow. Ask God for wisdom in the midst of everything that you do. Matthew Henry writes, Let the foolish become beggars at the throne of grace, and they are in a fair way to be wise. So the thought of literally, we're just camped out in front of God's throne, just begging him to give us wisdom. And he said that he'll, he'll, that he'll supply it. Can't wear God out on this one. He's not only promised it, he's promised to give lots of it. So go ask him for it, all right? Seriously, say amen if you're agreeing with this, or you're tracking with this, amen. Also remember the admonition of Proverbs, uh, many places, but Proverbs 15.22, uh, Proverbs 15.22 in particular. It says, without consultation, plans are frustrated, but by, with many counselors, they succeed. Look around at everyone who's, who's with you this morning. If you, all think back to, if you all think back to the home fellowship group that many of you attended last week at various places, you'll remember that we learned that worship is offering ourselves in service to God, right? Hopefully the other teachers taught the same, taught the same thing I did. But that was, the main, that was the main gist of that chapter, was that, here I am, Lord, send me. And the, one, of the, one of the many glorious things about what we do here every Sunday morning is that we're here offering ourselves up, and we're not the only ones here doing it. There's a place for private devotion, but here in the morning, that's why we call it corporate worship, because here is the body. 
And one of the many advantages of that is you can look around and see here is, you know, here is everyone else not only going through the Christian walk with me, suffering the same trials I am, but they have insights and wisdom to share uh, that I may need. So turn to, turn to all the, so look out for and make sure to take advantage of the counselors that the Lord's given your life. You know, it begins right in your own home. Husbands, talk to your wives. We're often afraid, as men, we're often afraid of sharing what we're struggling with because we're worried our wife is going to worry even more. But we've probably also learned enough times that we should recognize by now, if we're worried about something, she knows it, and she's only more worried because we're not talking to her about it. We've all been there. Anything, there, anything that's being silent when you're struggling with something is far more worrying to your wife than anything you could possibly say to her. So go ahead and start, out, start working through that. Wives, in the other direction, if you're struggling with something, lay it out before your husband. Ask him for his advice, certainly, but then ask him to make a decision. If you can't see one way or the other, then put it on him. That's his job. He's, um, he's probably not going to like it when you do that because it's gonna be, it's gonna make, he's going to have to step up and take leadership on that. But he needs to do it. And whether providence will provide you a help meet or a head or not, surround yourself with the people of God. Don't just show up here on Sunday mornings. That's a good start. But make sure your week is defined by the people of God whom you're around, who you're in contact with. And reach out to them for encouragement, certainly. But in context of what we have today, reach out for insight and advice. Because remember that the Lord gives different gifts to different parts of the body, of the body of Christ. So what seems like an insurmountable task in your mind might just be another day in the office for one of your brothers or sisters here already. So let's be sharing those burdens with one another. Come to your elders. Um, we're, you know, we're here to help. We're here to help you labor through these. Come let, us, you know, come let us bear the burdens with you and add our prayers to your own. And we'll, we'll pray for wisdom together. And above all, cling to Christ and his promises, like the one he's given here. And then, uh, just stole all my thunder and close the book before I need to read it again. Remember the, promise, remember the promises he's given, including including uh, this promise. And then look at the condition that he puts in verse 6, where he says, But let him who asks, ask in faith, without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Don't sit out there thinking, Okay, mm, i got to screw up some faith. i got to dredge up some faith in my heart so I can go pray and ask the Lord for wisdom. You've already been given that. Remember, we're reminded that's exactly what he's given us. If you found Christ, if you're in Christ, then you do it through the faith that he has already given you. So, and through, through Jesus, his heavenly Father and ours stands ready to pour his wisdom onto our heads, into our hearts. And so he's just stand, so go and ask for it. You have everything you need. And if you don't know Christ today, then please do not go out of here to face the trials, the trials, the difficulties, the consequences of sin in this fallen world. Uh, without finding the Lord Jesus first. Amen?